Welcome back to Rebellion Dogs Radio, a 21st century look at 12-step life now with less dogma and more bite. It's the We Agnostics, Free Thinkers, International AA Convention, Santa Monica, California. We're going to take you there. We've got speakers and highlights, and we've got links where you can get audio recordings of uh, all of the panels, keynotes, and workshops. So the setting is Santa Monica. It's November 6th to 8th. 2014, the first ever We Agnostics and Freethinkers International Alcoholics Anonymous Convention. There's workshops, keynote speakers, panels, AA meetings from atheists and agnostic groups from around the world, and a lot of sharing and making new friends and spending time with old ones, all in the California sun. This wasn't AA's rogue non-believers off on their own. It was general service office, conference delegates, past and present, from all over America. Supporters who don't doubt a loving God in their own life, but believe in an AA that belongs to everyone with a desire to stop drinking and speaks their language. There were about 300 of us in Santa Monica, attendees at the first ever WAFDIAC, met at a general meeting. They elected a committee and planned the second We Agnostics and Atheists and Freethinkers International AA Convention. It'll be in Austin, Texas in 2016. I'm going to share segments from some of the talks recorded at the conference by Encore Audio Archives. Dave S. was on hand all three days. Check out www.12steptapes.com. We'll have a link to it at Rebellion Dogs website. I wondered what customs and rituals would be included and what AA customs and rituals would be excluded at this first ever agnostic conference. While there aren't any prayers at most agnostic and atheist meetings, some read the 12 steps, some don't. Some read a secular interpretation of AA's 12 steps as agreed upon by the ultimate authority in AA, their own group conscience. So in the interest of less is more, there were no readings, no chanting, not in the main room meetings anyway. Can you have an AA meeting without reading how it works or praying for serenity? Sure you can. And we did. No one there wondered where they were. It was as AA as any meeting would be. There were, however, AA meetings hosted by some of the secular AA groups from all around the world. And they ran those meetings exactly the way they would in their hometown. To AA fundamentalists who want to, or have, hijack their local intergroups or AA local offices or clubhouses, now this might seem a little unusual. In places like Toronto, where intergroups still discriminates against agnostic groups and have replaced regional AA unity with AA uniformity, GSO is saddened by your bigotry. No one will tell you to get in line be more loving and tolerant, and practice the traditions and not be so rigid, that will ultimately be up to your own conscience, or left to the judgment of your children and grandchildren, who will look back at this time in history and ultimately judge the prejudice and discrimination going on today. Your rationalizations will be silent then, and their ultimate judgment will be the order of the day. Or, uh, if you're so inclined to believe... Uh, You can leave that argument for the pearly gates. Good luck with that. I was just going along with the crowd. These are good intentions, but the road you're paving is taking you to a destination you may be surprised with. Anyway, I digress a little. Andrew Solomon, he's a New York Times writer and an author of the book Far From the Tree, Parents, Children, and the Search for Identity. He's got a saying I heard on a TED Talk. There's always someone there to take our humanity away and always someone to restore it. Oppression breeds the power to oppose it. Identity politics always works on two fronts. First, it gives pride to someone who has given characteristics. And secondly, it causes the outside world to treat such people more gently and more kindly. It is strange that 
It's the tyranny of these rogue intergroups and AA clubhouses that harass atheist AA members that we have to thank for this great conference. In part, while they try to take another group's dignity or humanity away, instead, they set in motion or they were an inclusive force in a fellowship-wide reaction that contributed to this We Agnostics and Freethinkers AA convention and is supported by the larger AA community. Oh, the law of unintended consequences. But if some of our more Back to Basics members are listening, welcome. We're glad you're here. We're glad you have a meeting. And we're glad you have your freedom. We begrudge you nothing. As you listen to these speakers on this episode of Rebellion Dogs Radio, you'll hear General Service Conference Chair Emeritus, the Reverend Ward Ewing, GSO General Manager Phyllis H., and author of Waiting, a Nonbeliever's Higher Power, Mariah H. Ask yourself as you're listening to these stories, if you're so right about AA having to be the 12 steps exactly as written, or whatever your rationalization for judging or delisting your local groups, and ask yourself, would AA co-founders be casting agnostic groups from our fold or celebrating unity, recovery, and service along with us in Santa Monica. We're going to start where the conference ended with Ward Ewing. You should hear his whole talk. This is just an excerpt. He describes the hope, honesty, belonging, and gratitude that he sees in the AA way of life. He tells some moving and humorous stories that we just didn't have time for on this show, but I encourage you to visit Encore Audio Archives to get the CD of this and or maybe all of the Wafty Act 2014 meetings. You'll want the whole shebang. But without any further delay, here's an excerpt from Saturday Night in Santa Monica, California. Ladies and gentlemen, AA's Class A trustee, the Reverend Ward Ewing. I guess the title kind of gives it away. An ordained Episcopal minister and spent 12 years as dean and president of the General Theological Seminary in New York City. I always thought they got me as a trustee because I was cheap. <laughs> All it cost was a subway ride, you know, back and forth. Anyway, I also want to thank the committee uh, for inviting me. I know they took some risk in doing that, and I know some people have some questions about that. I mean, a non-alcoholic minister, keynoting, and, and I've had a wonderful time, and this has been a wonderful week for me, and I'm going to share some of, of, of my own reactions and growth from this week a, a little later, but I just want to thank you all. I began my journey with Alcoholics Anonymous in 1975 when I took a job in a small congregation in Louisville, Kentucky. Being a small congregation, I think I, and maybe my own age in my early 30s, I began to see alcohol as a problem for many of the families. I heard stories from children about drinking in their homes, and I knew I didn't know anything about this disease. I really probably knew more than I thought because I was a really good enabler. Uh, I could help people feel good after they had had some really bad incidents. That's gone. I knew I needed to learn something, and I decided that what I needed was a little expert advice. So I started attending open AA meetings, because I thought y'all would know more about this than anybody else, and I still think that's true. Some of you are here. I, it's, it's amazing how the length of sobriety that I hear from folks. Um, remember those days. Smoking was pretty heavy in the rooms of AA. In fact, I've discovered, I mean, I'm going to open meetings. They're nearly all speaker meetings. And if I was sitting in the back of the room, I couldn't see the speaker. <laughs> I would get home at night, and I would say, Jenny, I'm home. And she would say, I know, I smell you. <laughs> Take your clothes off and leave them outside. A very mixed message. <clears throat> I began my involvement with the steps about a year later, when a member of the parish, Willie, walked into my office and said, Ward, this is a title you're going to love. Ward, you're the spiritual expert, right? 
I, I really don't think I answered that. But he said, I'm out of touch with God, and the last time I was out of touch with my higher power, I drank, and if I drink again, I may die, and I want you to put me back in touch with God. Yeah, oh God. Thank you. <laughs> I re even then, I knew I couldn't do that. And we set up a group of, of six or seven who would meet every Tuesday afternoon. It wasn't an official AA meeting, because I was there. Uh, to talk about spiritual issues in their lives, whatever that meant. That group changed my life. Let me, a, a little something about clergy, and kind of, I hope this will make you a little compassionate for the poor suckers. <laughs> Congregations, parishioners, want clergy to be good. Yeah. They do not want clergy to be honest. That's a hard place. And I think that's part of the reason we see so many clergy crash and burn. To, to try to live up to that. Because what you do, since you can't be honest and they want you to be good, well then you are phony. You pretend. You fake it. And it's a terrible place to be. But in this group, they didn't give a damn about what I had done, what I thought, what I felt. As long as I did the best I could at being honest about what I thought, what I felt, what I'd done. And that honesty, that kind of sharing is so, y'all know this, but that is so freeing and life-giving. I don't think we talked about theology a lot, actually. We shared something called experience, strength, and hope. And I began to grow in a self-knowledge and a self-acceptance that uh, I've continued to this day. That was not a new it was not a brand new thing, but, but since that time, it's been nurtured by the 12 steps, and it's been my life support for the last 37 years. I learned that I need to strive for rigorous honesty, that being phony is deathly. I learned, my wife loved this, I learned the only inventory I can take is my own. <laughs> <laughs> I learned that I can truly change only one person, and that's hard enough, and that's myself. And I learned to let go. That's been one of the hardest things. I'm a high achiever, and high achievers don't let go very easily. But I learned to let go, and I thank you for that. In fact, one of the conversations today with Roger C., I realized that it was through this fellowship that I have let go of the need for a clear and certain theology. What a gift that is. Thank you. And I learned to take it one day at a time. Again, for an achievement-oriented human being, that's tough. I learned to work on anger, self-pity. Isn't that the worst? <laughs> and I seek to be open, to listen, to grow. Those are all gifts that you have given me. I may not be like all the other clergy you know. I live in Tennessee now that I'm retired. Uh, we live in the family home, which is about 15 miles from Dayton. Y'all heard of Dayton? Scopes trial? Monkey trial? My father was there as a teenager. This is fundamentalist country. In my country of East Tennessee and of much of the Southeast, the churches know the truth. Now, they don't agree with each other about what the truth is, but they know it. And if you don't agree with them, then to hell with you. To me, that does not feel like faith. That feels like fear. And religion plus fear leads to judgment, to division, to the damaging of education, to destructive behaviors, to damaging of our civil structure. And the Southeast is working as hard and as fast as it can to become a third world country. And I think a lot of that is that combination of religion and fear. I told myself, no religion bashing tonight. <laughs> so let me say one, I wrote here so I can say one thing and not, not be bashing anymore. 
I'm very disturbed by religious institutions that believe they know the truth and use that to determine who is in and who is out and then seek to impose their brand of truth on others. That deeply concerns me. It leads to arrogance, to division, to campaigns, to persecution, to crusades, to wars. You also can see why I am so strongly opposed to religion creeping into AA. Theology divides and encourages arrogance and judgment. Some of the worst battles in human history are because are fought at least in the name of theology. AA must remain open to anyone of any belief who wants to stop drinking. There's one criteria for membership. We all know that. The desire to stop drinking. That's the only criteria. Not belief, not God, not belief in God, not atheism, not any other qualification. The desire to stop drinking. And we have to keep those doors open wide. So let me share just a few reflections about this weekend. Some of the things I've learned, I've learned the, dif the difficulty many of you have with the word spirituality. I'd love to fix this for you. <laughs> right? I want to draw a line between spirituality and religion that's stronger than any wall that's been built in human history. But I've also learned the only person I can fix is B, <laughs> right? So y'all have to muddle through and figure that one out. But I can appreciate that the word spirituality can be very painful for many of you because it's been a way for religion and for beliefs to sneak into the fellowship. And together, frankly, we share the deep concern that that will be destructive. I've heard the frustration that many of you have experienced with judgment from others, with delisting, with basic literature that implies, after all, you will eventually find God. Oh, I want to say thank you for one thing. I have never liked chapter four. I just... and, and I've always been afraid to say that, <laughs> you know? And now I know there's a group that shares my conviction. And I thank you for that. I've been impressed with the optimism that I hear about, about this movement, particularly from Roger C. and Joe C. And, and I want to try to express that optimism. I, it's not in their words. I didn't get them written down. It's in my words. But in my words, I think what they have described, and from others of you, that this is, movement is about broadening the fellowship. It's a movement within AA that has already begun because there was a need to broaden the fellowship, to widen the doors. And it didn't, you didn't make it happen, and you're not going to make it come to a successful conclusion, but you're a part of it, and you will influence how it comes about. It's a wave of inclusion, and you're riding the wave. But the wave started out there, and it's going to land somewhere in the future. My experience has been that AA is the most inclusive organization or group that I've ever been associated with. It was way ahead of the curve with African Americans two years after the first meeting, with women joining the group, with GLBT, with Hispanics. But somehow, this issue has been more difficult. But one would be crazy to bet against full inclusion of all people in AA because it has always been an inclusive community and y'all are a part of that and going to help make that happen. You're probably not going to see the end. I won't. I'm old. Uh, and you didn't start it. But what a wonderful, wonderful time to be a part of this group in this community. As I've listened this weekend, I hear the strong commitment to the unity of AA. This is AA. You are members no matter what central offices say. And you know that. There's no question about it. But we have some communication problems. How can those who have theistic beliefs and those for whom such beliefs are untenable 
share about the power of this program of recovery. I'd like to fix that. <laughs> but I know that's not for me to fix. But I do want to share some thoughts about what I see is the common ground that we might share and what that might look like. I've been encouraged to say these words by a little book that I read a couple of weeks ago called Common Sense Recovery. I believe our approaches are very similar, but they come from very different perspectives. I share my thoughts about the power of this program of recovery. It's known by everyone in the fellowship who's sober today. It's not theoretical. So any understanding of this power must come out of experience, not religion, not sectarian theology, experience. And I believe this is possible because the 12 steps themselves are essentially experiential. They came out of the experience of the early members, and they have been refined through the experience of millions. Meetings change lives. So what is it about meetings that allow them to do that? What is it about meetings that make it possible for one to stop drinking? What is it about meetings that do what personal efforts, what strong wills, what psychologists and therapists, what righteous religious cannot do? Well, I don't believe any full answer is possible, especially for me. But I listen to your stories. I see members' lives change. I see the personal growth that moves from being self-absorbed to becoming an almost unthinking servant of the still-suffering alcoholics. And I recognize that this process is a mystery, but in the final analysis, it is experienced. And it's experienced by millions, and it's experienced in meetings. So what is it about meetings that makes this impossible, possible for millions of alcoholics? Yesterday, the comment about esprit de corps in the, in the Marines was an example of what I'm trying to talk about. Now, perhaps it's because I am an ordained minister, I tend to prefer the word spirit to the, to the word culture. But I hope you will not be offended that I use culture and spirit interchangeably. Whichever word we use, the spirit, the culture of a group or an organization is an invisible reality that exists as an integral part of the organization. And that is, an, is a principal theory in all business reform theory today. Groups have an invisible reality that has power over the members. Now, our modern tendency to ignore the culture of an organization as a force within the organization leads us to underestimate the strength of this invisible guiding power. Because the institution usually anecdotes and outlasts the members, it develops and imposes a set of traditions, expectations, beliefs, and values on everyone in the group, usually unspoken, unacknowledged, and even unconscious. This invisible network of influences constrains behavior far more rigidly than any printed set of rules ever would. I think this conference is a case in point. The need to resist what I would call a small-t tradition in AA, a tradition of faith in a deity, the very need to, to resist that affirms the existence of the influence of this invisible spirit of this fellowship. And in my experience, in a healthy AA group, there is a spirit of acceptance, of accountability, of truth, of gratitude, and of love. And that spirit, that culture, is in fact a power greater than the individual members. I would suggest to you that it is that spirit which makes the impossible possible. And you know this. You've experienced it. What we believe about something is far less important to living than what we experience. Experience is what transforms us. Belief is in the head. It's our attempt to explain the experience. Experience trumps explanation. And I believe that the dialogue between those who are religious and those who are free-thinking agnostics and atheists in AA can bear much fruit. I believe the common ground of experience provides the basis for that conversation. 
I say this as a religious person whose spiritual life has been strengthened and sustained by this program, by this fellowship. I have gained much this weekend as well, and I am truly grateful for the gifts that you have given me. I humbly, humbly give thanks that I have been privileged in the most wonderful way to be a part of this fellowship. Thank you. There was a conference delegates panel, and one of AA's trusted servants made it clear that we can read anything we want in an AA meeting. Nothing is sacred and nothing is forbidden. Write our own literature. Use conference-approved literature or anything our group conscience dictates. Your group might decide to read from Waiting, a non-believer's higher power. While it's published by Hazelton, it's written by an AA member, and it's as AA as any of us are. To those who know her, Maria H. was as poetic, prepared, and thoughtful as we've come to enjoy. She was sincerely delighted to be part of this humble bit of AA history. Maria's story is one of being entirely ready when she ran out of alcoholic bottoms, and she was sincerely and willingly ready to do what it takes to make it work, regardless of the seeming incompatibility with her worldview. She acknowledged that the language of the steps, the God stuff, doesn't talk to all of us, and certainly fall short of giving answers. While she sees that people stay sober praying and turning it over, what was a non-believer to do to work the steps? She clearly got at least as much out of the conference as she gave. Here's a small snippet of her keynote address Thursday night, the opening night at Waftiak. When I came to AA, I'll say I was spiritually bankrupt, and I do use the word spirit. I use it interchangeably with many other words, wiser self, creative impulse, superego consciousness, whatever substance makes up the shape and nature of what we know as the self. Just as you can translate the first line of the Bible in dozens of ways, you can use the word spirit or not. I do, because I like the Greek translation of the word spirit just means breath. And just as I say I was spiritually bankrupt when I arrived, I say now that I'm granted a daily reprieve based on the maintenance of my spiritual condition. I take that to mean that I have a daily choice about how I will live, and that by your instruction and example, I am learning to make the right choice. I think we sober up by some measure of chance, some measure of hope, some measure of sheer desperation, and some faith in the possibility of a different kind of life. I think we get sober by finding our way to these rooms, meeting the humans who can translate for us, meeting the real human angels, feeling the miraculous kindness of strangers, and working the steps to the best of our ability. I was repeatedly told that I would need a God pronto to stay sober and comprehend the word serenity or regain the sanity I had clearly never had. I was told that I alone could make no real change in my life. I would need the hand of a higher power in order to get things done. I wasn't opposed to the idea. I didn't find it upsetting, didn't take it personally. I was entirely prepared and willing to throw open the doors of my heart or my soul or do whatever I needed to do. I read some beautiful books. I watched a very great many sunrises. I traveled all over looking and listening and waiting for something to come. Eventually, I realized that the practice of listening to the silence and waiting for whatever is to come is the spiritual practice that I need. So how did the miracle happen? When did I have the spiritual experience of the lightning bolt or any other variety? When did I get down on my knees and give it to God? I'm actually not being very sarcastic. I absolutely believe this works for people. I have no reason to doubt it. I can't explain their sobriety any more than they can explain mine. And I have no problem with getting down on my knees. I have done it. I did it the other day with my sponsor because she told me to, and periodically I shut up. But there are a whole lot of alcoholics who get on their knees every morning and stay drunk. I have no problem giving it to God. If God's a thing and he wants this shit I keep in my head, he can have it. But until he does, I have the steps. Step 12 reads, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. It does not say having had a spiritual awakening and then working the steps. Mm -hmm. If we do this in order, we work the steps first. And we will have better luck with the whole spiritual awakening thing. Step 12 also doesn't say, once we believed in God, we also believed that these steps were magic and would only work if we did them exactly according to the book, which does not even tell you how to do steps one through three, but we do them that way anyway because that's how they are done. 
at the risk of repeating myself, it says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. And it doesn't say what a spiritual awakening is or isn't. It doesn't say what a spirit is or isn't. It doesn't say how it awakens or what a woken spirit looks like. We have the infamous chapter of the agnostic with all its weirdness, and we have the corrective to that in the appendix on spiritual experience, in which Herbert Spencer is famously quoted as saying something someone else said. We get ourselves all indignant and tied in knots about the people who take the big book as divinely inspired final say on all things ever. But there are people on this earth who believe this earth is only 6,000 years old. And we just say, what the hell, and go on with our day. We are people who would not ordinarily mix. <laughs> and we get stuck on the first part of the step. Once we get past the word spiritual, the step suggests a really simple action, like all the steps do. We're supposed to carry this message to other alcoholics, and we are supposed to practice these principles in all our affairs. Never says what the message is. Never says what the principles are. The internet has dozens of lists of possible principles ranging in length from free primary principles to 44, and there are surely more. The eight I'm most conscious of on a daily basis are the ones that hit closest to home. They are the ethical principles by which I didn't live and couldn't live while I was still drunk. They're things that help me curb my character defects. They help me do the next right thing. They're things I see in you, honesty, hope, willingness, courage, integrity, discipline, perseverance, awareness, service, and love. Those are ways of living, not tenets of any faith. These actions we take are not rules by which we abide. They are things I want that you have, and I practice them because you show me how. From how it works, I know we all love how it works. No one among us has been able to practice anything like perfect adherence to these principles. We are not saints. The point is we are willing to grow along spiritual lines. I recently got into a particularly ridiculous argument about the word spiritual with a professor of law, who was terribly famous and impressive, if that's your sort of thing. He informed me that my concept of spirit, indeed my whole theory of spiritual practice, yes, even the idea of spiritually itself, was flawed. I agreed. He said, how can you defend this absurd argument about spirituality when you do not even have a working definition of what the spirit is? I said, I can't. He narrowed his eyes at me and leaned in and said really meanly, Madam, your notion of spirit is vague. <laughs> oh my god, I left all the way home. And I thought, dude, your, your notion of law, let's not even talk about your notion of law. Each morning I wake up and I call it a spiritual awakening. Good news, I still exist. And there is something in me that's capable of change. Each time I run into a bear when I'm hiking, which by some cosmic conspiracy has happened more than once, and it turns out bears are bigger than you might think, it is a spiritual experience. Each time I'm alone. Each time I'm in a group of strangers or in the company of friends. Each day I'm not drunk. Each day, we, each time we slap a newborn infant, infant into life and she takes her first breath and leaves one animal state for another, joining the rest of us animals here on our spinning rock. Spiritual experience, as I understand it, is nothing more than an encounter with something vaster than myself. The critical moment when I'm aware of my own tininess and become truly right-sized, when I'm reminded that I am a flicker, a blink, a breath. So I return to the Greek translation of the word spirit. The spirit is breath, the thing that is alive, the thing that causes us to think and feel, create and break down. Maybe in a year or two, we'll know that the word spirit is accurately translated as your brain. Whatever it is, it is the stuff of human experience, perception, emotion, causation, reflection, impulse, action, dream. Spirit, I think, is the thing within us that can change. There are other, much better arguments for the physics of change, entropy, times arrow, chaos, fancy math, but I am just not that smart, and I count on my fingers, and math does not yet tell me how to live. Mother Teresa once said, if we have no peace, it is, be it is because we have forgotten that we belong to one another. As we go forward, I think we would do well to remember that we do belong to one another, and we do belong to this fellowship, and no one and nothing can change that fact. No one's trying to. 
No one's threatening to kick out all those crazy atheists. I do not feel that subjected to someone else's religion when he introduces himself as Lyle and says that by the grace of God and the blood of Jesus Christ, he's sober today. If he wants to say that, he can. I'm perfectly welcome to say my name is Maria, and by a chance confluence of cosmic factors, I'm sober today, but that would be equally obnoxious. And in both cases, we are probably wrong. The beauty of this program is that Lyle and I are both allowed to be wrong as loudly and completely wrong as we want, and can find a meeting in which to be wrong at any hour of the day somewhere in this world, and everyone in that meeting will recognize our wrongness and understand our story. And if we say, I want a drink, they won't walk away. The rift around religion and spirituality is hardly new, but I think now there may be this critical mass of people whose desire for an international, non-theistic recovery community has grown intense enough that we need to make the community really come alive. But what would that community look like if we were to create a space for it and foster its growth? As a group, what would be our common goal? How do we fulfill our primary purpose and help the suffering alcoholic? What does unity mean if we're setting ourselves apart? Are we deliberately causing controversy? Are we bringing in outside issues? Are we self-will run riot en masse? There are just a couple of questions that an agnostic AA community would have to face. But what we really need to know is, can we broaden the circle without breaking the bond? I think we can. AA has gone through seismic upheavals before and survived and strengthened as a result. Most of these upheavals have been set off by issues of inclusion and exclusion. Many people have felt like outsiders in the rooms of AA, and many of them made the decision to work on healing the program from within. Countless marginalized groups have created a place for themselves in the fellowship and have made themselves quite at home, because it is home. They belong here, we belong here, and we need to make ourselves at home as well. We've been working toward inclusion in our own cities and towns for years, but this conference is a critical mass of people searching for a recovery community that not only allows us our beliefs, but fosters our free thinking and challenges us to live better lives. This is not ultimately about agreeing on a point. This is not about what we believe, but about how we live. How we live indeed. Maria finished the night that included AA members speaking from the UK, France, Canada, Hawaii, New York City, and host state California. I had the honor of kicking off the day. I'll share a couple of minutes of my rambling with you. Day one saw a committee that was a little behind. We were late starting. The natives were restless, and I decided to forego my 20 to 30 minute allocation of witty repartee and place for fewer words and help get the train back on schedule. Earlier that day, I was moved and quite overwhelmed, really, by some of you, readers of Beyond Belief, Agnostic Musings for 12 Step Life. I've never been around so many readers of my book before, and you told me how important the book was to you, and you thanked me. And I believe you, because books and songs and movies and plays, these are important to me. So I relate. But I must say I was quite taken aback. Anyway, here's how the conference started. So um, we're going to start with the, the lineup of the fellowship speakers. And next, I'd like to introduce Joe C. As many of you know, um, he is a renowned author among us. <laughs> and Josie is from Toronto, one also the founders of the Toronto groups um, Beyond Belief and so forth. This is Josie. I see uh, one of my jobs here. It's really easy if I share some of my, my time allotted. I'll be able to get us back on schedule. <laughs> I'm Joe, and I'm an alcoholic. It's great to be here. It's a, an honor to be here. I'm so proud of this committee. You know, this idea came up in 100 coffee shops in 100 towns. Someone did something about it. Someone here in California, everything starts in California, uh, decided uh, we're going to actually do something about it. And, and not unless we have troubles or unless it becomes a burden or they just said, we're going to do it, uh, let's do it. This isn't just a, a gathering of uh, untraditional thinkers or non-believers. It's uh, untraditional thinkers and non-believers and the people who support us. 
And uh, just as spirituality maybe shouldn't be a word reserved for the religious, free thinker shouldn't be a word reserved for the non-believer. Most of us in AA concern ourselves more with the new person's salvation, not proselytizing our own brand of uh, salvation. We're a people not divided by message, but by language. It's the same message. Uh, some of us went to the Pacific group last night where they share the same message and maybe speak a slightly different language. I, I was made to feel as welcome there as I am here. I'm glad I went. There is all kinds of, you know, stories, you know, it becomes mythical, right? Whether it's, you know, those agnostics or that group or those back to basics people, but really uh, there is no them. There's uh, just, just us. 30 years ago, just north of here, almost to the day, as a Canadian, I hope you appreciate, I had to learn who uh, Cesar Chavez was. I didn't know who he was. You probably have streets named after him here. But it was November 9th, 1984, in San Francisco at the Commonwealth Club, where he said, once social change begins, it cannot be reversed. You cannot uneducate the person who has learned to read. You cannot humiliate the person who feels pride. You cannot oppress the people who are not afraid anymore. So that reminds me of a few things. I'm worthy to kick this off, but I'm not essential. <laughs> Something, you know, took place long ago in AA. If this had never happened, it would have continued. If none of us had ever been, I mean, it just, you can't stop social change. Evolution doesn't ask permission. It doesn't wait for a consensus. It just uh, goes about its, its way. And, and I really believe that although I have a timetable <laughs> in terms of how I think these things should happen and who the agents of change should be, that's uh, just my crazy little narrative. <laughs> but evolution is doing fine. Uh, thank you very much. And, uh, and we're going to be fine. Uh, thank you very much. I also want to say I have written a few things down. <laughs> and some of you have introduced yourself to me, and that has meant the world to me. But, you know, I'm a reader, not a writer, right? I'm a listener, not a talker. And all that I've done is just sort of mirrored back what I've learned, not what I know. And what I learned was from you. Here's what you started with. I'm not like you, and I don't want any of that. <laughs> and this is what you got. <laughs> and, uh, and this is the work you've done. Let's have a great weekend. The only other person I'll uh, quote is, uh, what's your name? Someone will correct me. All I want to do is have some fun. <laughs> what is it? Cheryl Crow. I, all I want to do is have some fun. What's the next line? I got a feeling I'm not the only one. All I want to do is have some fun while the sun goes down on Santa Monica Boulevard. Have fun, everybody. As the sun came down over Santa Monica Boulevard on the Friday night, Phyllis H would close out with a lot of quotes from our founders and former trustees. She was touched to be invited, and we agnostics and atheists were moved that GSO was so supportive of us. It was truly healing. We started uh, today's episode with Reverend Ward Ewing, the best friend an atheist or agnostic could ever have in AA a theme that uh, Ward started uh, during the weekend and other members picked up on was this. He nailed the AA experience. He describes it as when the impossible becomes possible, almost everyone in AA around the world would agree with that. Then he added that when we add the adjective spiritual to experience, then I don't agree with your definition of spiritual and you're offended by what my meaning of the word is and now we don't agree on the experience that we agreed on just a minute ago. Curious, isn't it, how the narcissism of small differences can be triggered by such an innocent word?
Anyway, Phyllis H. is a great way to end our show today. She personified the idea that together AA is better, and everyone is welcome in AA, and sobriety in AA is possible without having to accept anyone else's beliefs or having to deny your own. From the General Service Office in New York City, here's Phyllis H. Thank you so much, Dorothy. I'm Phyllis H., and I am an alcoholic. And what a privilege to be here with you. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. And I'm so grateful for the invitation. And uh, Dorothy called me, and it wasn't long before I was uh, got my schedule arranged and said, oh, yes, I can come. Uh, it means an awful lot to GSO, to myself, and I think to AA throughout our U.S. and Canada, and perhaps around the world. In the chapter to Tradition 8, in the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, Bill W., our co-founder, wrote, Almost no recovery from alcoholism has ever been brought about by the world's best professionals, whether medical or religious. At the same time, Bill acknowledged and embraced these professionals and anyone else who wanted to help us gain recovery. It was just that the experience of the pioneers in Alcoholics Anonymous showed that our best results come from one alcoholic working with another. And when we stand together in that dark pit of alcoholism, we show each other the way out. The same co-founder wrote some wonderfully wise reflections on how all-encompassing alcoholics should be. In the pamphlet, A Tradition, How It Developed, he expressed this in his 1946 essay on who is a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. It says the following, We do not wish to deny anyone his chance to recover from alcoholism. We wish to be just as inclusive we can, never exclusive. He continued with this idea of inclusiveness. Perhaps it means that we are losing all fear of those violent emotional storms which sometimes cross our alcoholic world. Perhaps it bespeaks our confidence that every storm will be followed by a calm, a calm which is more understanding and more compassionate. Under the umbrella of AA today, there are more than 2 million members worldwide finding relief from the devastation of alcoholism. There are members of every ethnicity, culture, and gender. There are members who have various beliefs. There are those who have specific religious beliefs. And there are members who are agnostic, members who are atheist, and members who define themselves as non-believers. In the foreword to the second edition of the big book is a very clear statement from Bill. Alcoholics Anonymous is not a religious organization. Emphasizing this matter in Alcoholics Anonymous comes of age, Bill had a footnote added to page 232 to clar clarify further his views on this issue. Speaking for Dr. Bob and myself, I would like to say that there has never been the slightest intent on his part or mine of trying to find a new religious denomination. Dr. Bob held certain religious convictions, and so do I. This, of course, the personal privilege of every AA member. Nothing, however, could be so unfortunate for AA's future as an attempt to incorporate any of our personal theological views into AA teaching, practice, or tradition. Were Dr. Bob still with us, I am positive he would agree that we could never be too emphatic about this matter. As the years of A experience have accumulated, however, and as this assembly today exemplifies, members can have a rich and full experience in recovery without necessarily having a theistic or deistic belief, and other than having a desire to stay away from one drink one day at a time. There is no requirement to believe in anything. Our General Service Conference represents a group conscience of AA in the United States and Canada. Year after year, it has approved pamphlets addressing a variety of topics and reaching out to different kinds of potential members. In many of them, it directly notes that atheists and agnostic are welcome. In the 1976 pamphlet, Do You Think You're Different?, an alcoholic and atheist named Ed wrote, to those who do not accept the idea of a supernatural being, let me assert that it is the people 
who have strengthened us and has strengthened me when I needed help and everyone. I have interpreted the frequent mention of God in the 12 steps and elsewhere as a power that comes from other people. He continues in step two, the power greater than ourselves meant AA, but not just the members I knew, it meant all of us, everywhere, sharing a concern for one another and thereby creating a spiritual resource stronger than any one of us could provide. Bill and the early pioneers saw AA as a society always in a state of becoming, never something completed. In his writings, he shared clearly about the fears that early members had of becoming rigid and unable realistically to assess and to meet challenges. To Bill and those early members, past solutions were just that, past solutions. Not sacred, not sacred rules to bind us rigidly to some dogmatic path. In his landmark book of psychology, The Varieties of Religious Experience, William James noted that his movements grow distant from their founders. Different interpretations of the original message emerge. Changes or schisms often begin to appear. Or people become afraid that the original message will be lost. Some members of these movements scramble to solidify and codify a more rigid adherence to the original, or some members make efforts to codify a newer interpretation. In our case, for one reason or another, a few meetings seem to have become less open to all who suffer from alcoholism, no matter what their individual beliefs or non-beliefs might be. This is not the inclusiveness the bill had in mind. I am sure of that. There are many stories I could tell related to the importance of love and tolerance in our fellowship, related to the need of AA to be all-inclusive, so our message of hope can reach as many of the suffering alcoholics as possible. And the AA grapevine has dozens of stories about agnostics and atheists, and what Bill referred to as the unbelievable. Unbelievable, the unbeliever. <laughs> could be. <laughs> that was a nice slip, wasn't it? <laughs> I will share one such grapevine story written by Bill in 1961, and Bill tells of the meeting with a Midwestern small-town doctor. It was a social evening, and Bill monopolized the conversation by talking about AA. There's no surprise there. Interested, the doctor and his wife asked many questions, one of which made Bill suspect that the good doctor was an agnostic and maybe even an atheist. Bill wrote, this promptly triggered me, and I set out to convert him then and there. Deadly serious, I actually bragged about my spectacular spiritual experience of the year before. The doctor mildly wondered if that experience might not be something other than I thought it was. <laughs> mm. This hit me hard and I was downright rude. The doctor was uniformly courteous, good-humored, and even respectful. I had convinced him of nothing. Three years later, Bill revisited the town and learned that the doctor had passed away shortly before his visit. He spoke with the wife and learned that the doctor was from a noted Boston family, had been a brilliant Harvard graduate who might have gone on to enjoy a wealthy practice, but instead had insisted on becoming a company doctor in what was a strife-torn industrial town. She recalled his dedication and that she had never known her husband to complain seriously about anything. Bill noted, this was a story of a man of great spiritual worth. The hallmarks were plain to be seen. Humor and patience, gentleness, courage, humility and dedication, unselfishness and love. A demonstration I might never come near to making myself. This was a man I had chided and patronized. This was a so-called unbeliever I had presumed to instruct. It burst in upon me how very dead faith can be when minus responsibility. The doctor had unwavering belief in his ideals, but he also practiced humility, wisdom, and responsibility. Hence his superb demonstration. My own spiritual awakening had given me a built-in faith in God, a gift indeed, but I had been neither humble nor wise. Boasting of my faith, I had forgotten my ideals. Pride and irresponsibility had taken their place. By so cutting off my own light, I had little to offer my fellow alcoholic. Therefore, my faith was dead 
to them. At last I saw how many had gone away, and why, and some of them gone forever. Our code of love and tolerance begin right there. Sober AA members travel many different paths when it comes to faith or the lack of faith. AA members do have a strong spiritual component in their recovery. Some belief in a power greater than ourselves, whatever the definition, lack of definition, or nature of that power, is encouraged in order to aid in lifting the obsession to drink. A former GSO general manager, a man with over 50 years of sobriety and service to AA, points out the traditions are unique in that it is unnatural for humans to follow them. (laughs) It is natural to put oneself ahead of a group. It's natural to want to govern a group. It's natural to exclude others from a society. It's natural to try to extend a proven technique to solve new problems. It's natural to accept contributions from the public. It's natural and fun to express opinions of all sorts of issues. And it's natural to want to broadcast the news of your success to the world. And it's natural to seek fame, influence, and glory in a society. Yet, AAs do their best not to do these things as AA members. They put AA first. The traditions are suggestions, again. No one has the power to enforce them. Yet most AAs and AA groups try hard to live by them. They are simply too practical to ignore. At the root of them is the idea that the less alcoholics have to argue about, the less likely they are to drive away newcomers. And isn't that what we're about? We know that there are differences. There will always be differences. We cannot have over two million individuals come together and always agree on every issue. This is where our tradition of unity comes in. AA unity rests on trust. Trust that we can love and tolerate the differences we each have as we strive to fulfill our primary purpose together. In AA, we trust in many things, in the informed group conscience and in the program of recovery. We seem to talk endlessly at times, and we overanalyze any number of issues. But in the end, as a fellowship, we set aside all of our differences to carry the AA message. We recognize that we are all here to stay sober and help others to achieve sobriety. Our very lives depend on that trust. Just as our sobriety depends to a great deal and a great degree on the love and tolerance that we show one another. At its very core, AA is and continues to be simply a movement. We guard against it becoming an institution or an alliance without or with any doctrine or religion. Our tent stands tall and wide. It covers all lands and languages with space for all thoughts, ideas, and understanding. The poles supporting this tent are our three legacies, recovery, unity, and service. I will close with one of my favorite quotes from Step 10 in the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions. Courtesy, kindness, justice, and love. These are the keynotes by which we will come into harmony with practically everyone. I thank you. For a link to Encore Audio Archives or to the We Agnostics International Convention website, visit rebelliondogspublishing.com. Thank you for being part of the show. See you online. Twitter or Facebook will be there.
the sun. 